This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, in his latest work, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, author Daniel Jurgen analyzes how America became the beneficiary of an energy revolution. Since 1970, U.S. oil production had been dropping steadily. In the year 2000, that trajectory started to change thanks to the widespread use of improved fracking technology. By 2018, the U.S. overtook Russia and Saudi Arabia to become the world's largest oil producer. The new map explores the geopolitical impact of that unexpected oil boom. It also examines what role wind and solar energy expansion will play as nations around the world push for solutions to climate change. Daniel Jurgen is an energy expert and economic historian. He was awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 1992 for his book, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. The University Bookstore presented this event on November 23rd. KUOW's Ross Reynolds interviewed Mr. Jurgen. Hi, everyone. My name is Grace, and I'm the events producer at University Bookstore in Seattle, Washington. I would like to welcome you to our event in celebration of the new map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, the new book by Daniel Jurgen. Thank you all for supporting a local independent bookstore. University Bookstore is the oldest independent bookstore in the region. In fact, we're celebrating our 120th anniversary this year. We're always grateful for your patronage, and especially now in this pandemic year where the fate of bookstores and all small businesses is uncertain. For more than a century, energy, its availability, access, and flows has been intertwined with security and geopolitics, and more than ever before, this nexus will shape the future. Here to tell us more about that is Pulitzer Prize-winning author Daniel Jurgen, a highly respected authority on energy, international politics, and economics, He's also the best-selling author of the prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power, The Quest, Energy, Security, and the Remaking of the Modern World, and Shattered Peace, The Origins of the Cold War, and co-author of Commanding Heights, The Battle for the World Economy. Daniel is vice chairman of IHS Market, one of the leading information and research firms in the world, a member of the Board of the Council on Foreign Relations, a senior trustee of the Brookings Institution, and has served on the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board under the last four presidential administrations. Today's discussion will be moderated by Ross Reynolds, KOW's Executive Producer of Community Engagement. And now I'll turn it over to Ross and Daniel. Uh, Along with the other credits, which were already mentioned, Daniel's a terrific writer. The new map is a sweeping, gripping history of how the world has been changed by its energy energy sources and how the transition from fossil fuels to renewable resources is affecting us now 
and will affect us in the near future. Now, you're right, Daniel, that although some won't want to hear it, oil will remain the primary fuel that makes the world go round. Why do you say that? Well, I don't say it's going to remain the dominant fuel. I really say that it's going to be a mixed system as we go ahead towards that year 2050, that uh, with the scale of where we are today, 84% of world energy comes from fossil fuels. There's no question a transition is happening. It's no question the direction. It's just how fast can it go? And I think also people overlook, they think oil is just about transportation. And if we just go to that debate that some may remember a few year, weeks ago between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, they got an argument about restaurants and, uh, and people going to restaurants. And Joe Biden said, well, we'll put, have plexiglass in restaurants. Of course, plexiglass is a petroleum product. So hospital operating room is dominated by plastics. So there's other uses of oil other than combustion in the car, automobile engine. It wasn't that many years ago that the great debate, the great discussion was over peak oil, the idea that what, at what point will the world just run out of oil? Now that concern seems to have evaporated. Why is that? Yeah. Well, it's a complete flip around. If you know, uh, You're quite right, Ross, if you go back a dozen years, the world was gonna run out of oil. And then this thing happened in the United States called the shale revolution and changed the entire balance of oil. And the US went from importing 60% of its oil and it seemed to go to 70 to 80% with a lot of costs, both political and economic, to position today where the United States is essentially energy independent. And by the way, is also the world's largest oil producer. And it's happened in 10 years. And how has that influenced America's place in the world to go from all these concerns about another oil shortage crisis to a place that exports oil that has a surf surplus? It gives the U.S. Well, it gives the U.S. a new stature in the world, and it gives flexibility in the world um, that it didn't have before when we were dependent upon uh, imported oil. And you can really see it in a country that, that I know well that I'm involved with. Uh, is India. And uh, now the U.S. exports energy, oil and gas to India. And the Prime Minister Modi has said that that's now one of the cornerstones of a, of a growing relationship between the United States. You're right. Unlike uh, the discussion about peak oil, the discussion now is not when the oil will be gone, but when the demand for it exactly. will hit its high point and begin to decline. When do you see that happening? What's well, your timeline? Well, let me just let back up to just sure. something else. Another really good example, whether yeah. you liked Obama's approach to Iran, Trump's approach to Iran, or what will be Joe Biden's approach to Iran, we wouldn't be able to do any of that were it not for the change position in oil because the Iranians, they scoffed when Obama was pursuing a, a nuclear deal because they thought the world needed their oil. And it turned out the world didn't need their oil. And, you know, the world's working fine without their oil insofar as it's working right now. Um, uh, your question about peak demand. Yes. Yes. That is, you know, that's one of the, so as you said, it was peak oil, which meant running out of supply. Now it's peak oil sort of running out of demand. Well, we're going to see more electric cars in the fleet. We're going to, but I think that still, you know, when we come out of COVID on a global basis and if world economy starts growing again, uh, and you see rising incomes in countries like China and India, you'll see increased consumption. So I think peak oil probably demand, at this point, it looks like it's around 2030 or the early 2030s, which used to sound far away, but isn't anymore. Well, 10 years. Um, 
But does that give us enough time to avoid the climate catastrophe that some predict if we don't reach that peak of demand yeah, for yes. another 10 years? Yes, because you know there's no way that you're going to turn it off in 10 years. So mitigation is an important part. Carbon capture is an important part of it. Renewables will grow a lot, but renewables don't power cars. The average car in the United States stays on the road 10, 12 to 15 years. Uh, so those cars just aren't going to disappear overnight. So I think, you know, so, you know, I think you'd have to look different. There are different, I forgot how many scenarios there are in the UN's climate thing, but there are a lot of different scenarios. But uh, I mean, the reality is we will move towards increased renewables. We'll move towards a lower carbon future. I think U.S. CO2 emissions now, I think, are back to the 1983 level, although our economy has more than doubled since then. Ironically, that's because natural gas, mainly because natural gas has replaced coal in generating electricity. You know, many businesses are now uh, talking about how they're going to be working on reducing their use of oil, how they're going to get to net zero. Even the big oil companies are touting the fact that they're being part of this uh, transition. Um, do you think that beyond what they're saying, that businesses that are consuming and, and driving the demand for oil really are converting to a different view of the future? Or is this just for show? What do you think? No, I think it's, uh, you know, you can take some of the tech companies in Seattle. They're, you know, increasingly focused on uh, renewable generation uh, or offsetting it. Some of the oil companies now say, well, we're energy companies setting targets of net zero carbon by 2050. That seems to become the benchmark. In the, in the new map, I say the world, when it comes to energy, the world divides in two. There's the pre-Paris era and the after-Paris era. We're in the after-Paris era. Paris is a climate uh, conference of 2015. And it's taken five, you know, we're five years away from it now, almost exactly five years away from it. And those goals are increasingly embedded in the policies of countries, in the attitudes of investors, and in company strategies. How you get there is a challenge. We did a study with uh, Ernie Moniz, the former energy secretary um, for the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, about the technologies we don't have yet. So... You need, you need things that we don't have. The U.S. Department of Energy spends $6.5 billion a year on basic science. We probably need to spend more. Um, some American politicians would ban the import and export of oil and the domestic production of oil. You question how that could even be done and still have a functioning economy. Well, I think, it, I think our economy would simply stop. I mean, we, I mean, this, first of all, it's a big, you know, oil and gas is a big industry. It's 12.3 million people before COVID. Secondly, it's really important for manufacturing industries because something I have the number like 65% of fixed business investment was related to it. More importantly, the next time somebody goes into a heart operation, um, they won't be able to put a stent in his heart because they wouldn't have the plastic tools to do it. So, I mean, there are a lot, you know, uh, the medicines you take, many of them are actually ultimately derived from petroleum products. So, uh, but you know what would happen if you banned fracking, which was a slogan? Um, I don't think people, the people who would really be happy if we banned fracking is Russia. Hmm. Uh, because if we ban fracking, they don't like fracking. They don't like shale industry anyway, because it's taken market share away from them and they see it augmenting the position of the United States in the world. So they don't like that. 
So they'd be thrilled because really, if you say ban fracking, what you're really doing is saying, let's import a lot more oil. Let's get back on the oil import track until such time as every American has an electric car, which will take some time. You point out that fracking, that this extraction of oil, which has given us a surplus, really requires a lot of uh, time and energy and has a depleting return on it. Do you think the United States will retain that advantage going forward? I think that's a very good question. And um, the the growth of the shale industry, you'd never seen anything like that before in the uh, history of oil. It was so fast and so large, kind of took everybody by surprise. It kind of... You know, was, if you think of wind and solar as the biggest energy innovations of the, of the 20th century, this was the biggest one of the first part of the 21st century. Uh, but at some point before COVID, investors were saying, well, it's great you're growing so fast, but we'd actually like to get some of our money back. You know, we'd like return on our investment. And the industry was going to have to change. And then it went into a crisis like other industries uh, with COVID, with its done to the economy and to demand. So I think, and so we'll see U.S. oil production at the end of the year will probably be um, about 15% lower than it was in February of this year. I think when we come out of this, uh, we'll see investment resume, prices which have been kind of, like a lot of things in our economy are in what I call the COVID alley. They're just boxed in and get out of the COVID alley, be more market-oriented, and I think you'll start to see a modest growth again. So I think the U.S. will remain one of the big three in world oil. You, 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 Ross, you know that for years and years and years, people talked about OPEC versus non-OPEC, but that's now changed that the U.S., actually the three big three players are the U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia, and how they play the game uh, what they do is what will really do a lot to shape what the future oil market looks like and what the geo and what the geopolitics look like, which is a very important part of uh, of the new map. Daniel Jurgen, what are the biggest factors holding back this energy transition, slowing it down? I think uh, number one is scale, just uh, how you know where we are today and where we want to go. Two is I don't I think the lack don't have enough. Uh, we need additional technology. Three, no one really knows what the cost will be. Although I have to say the costs of wind and solar have come down a lot. I talked about a shale revolution. There's certainly been a solar revolution and solar costs are down a lot. And you see a lot of utilities moving in that direction. I think um, question of supply chains, which really fascinates me. When you look at the scale of what would be involved in making a shift, you Historically, people have talked about big oil. You're going to need a lot of big shovels, a lot of mining, a lot of moving of minerals and uh, moving dirt from one place to another. So I think, I think that's not focused on. And then that ties into the kind of geopolitics because China has a particularly uh, strong position in what they call the new energies. At this point, at least, they dominate the lithium-ion battery supply chain. 70% of, of panels come from China, another 10% from Chinese companies elsewhere. And, and as, you, as, as you know, Ross, the, the theme of the book is also the geopolitics. And one of the other big themes is this growing rift between the U.S. and China and where it goes. And so I think geopolitics are going to come in and be at play too, tied into the supply chains. So I think those are, 
some of the factors and just, you know, this, as I go back to the scale of the system. I want to return to the U.S. and China in a moment, but one of the other things that could be an issue going forward is that although you think of renewable energy as not requiring digging in the ground, actually it does because a lot of the minerals, the rare minerals, earth minerals that go into batteries and other, these other necessary things are, are very rare and hard to find and expensive to dig up. Right. Why, why, what and, kind and, of factor and, is that? And I think there's not a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, opposition to mining in the United States too. So that's why I get into the supply chain. Uh, I, I, I have a friend who's a, chairman of a, of a you know, kind of a post-startup battery company. And they wanted to cease being dependent upon China. So they found another source. Turned out it was China. And uh, it's and India, uh, there's now been some shooting between India and China and in the Himalayas. And we just did a big virtual energy conference. We do one every year, but we did it with India. And we had the prime minister there, a number of ministers. And they are looking at the same question how do they separate their supply chains from this overwhelming dependence on China? So, you know, I think that's overall big task of the new Biden administration is going to be the number one issue is going to be relations with China. And this is this is part of the relationship. And I was fascinated by a recent Wall Street Journal article, and it was about one of Elon Musk's partners in the electric car business. His new business is a firm that recycles those precious minerals found in batteries as a way to not have to dig as much up. Could that be a partial solution yeah, or a, it, a large yeah, part I of the think, solution? I think that, I think what you, you can say, China has these advantages over there. The U.S. has this advantage is that we're an incredibly innovative society. We have national, 17 national labs. We have uh, this six and a half billion, the Department of Energy. We have big companies. We have entrepreneurs, startups. And the guy you're talking about is J.B. Straubel. And he's one of the uh, stars, actually, in the new map, because I tell the story of Tesla through his idea, eyes because he was a chief technology officer. So I think uh, when you look at the market capitalization of Tesla today, wouldn't bet against JP. So I think that's why I think there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, innovation. I just spoke last week. Uh, MIT has a thing called the Energy Initiative. And the amount of effort among people that's going into this is you know, trying to address one part or another is huge. And so if we're going to have some surprises on the technology side, it's going to come from the United States, I think. And I think, like as you say, JB, but his story is, it's a great story because uh, it's one of the stories I love in the book. He goes to lunch in like 2001 with uh, uh, Elon Musk and they're trying to pitch Elon Musk on an electric airplane. And apparently Musk says, I'm not interested in that. And then JB's been obsessed with this idea of electric cars. And he says, you know, now with, with lithium ion batteries, you can string them together in a pack, very different than what was tried in the 1990s. And Musk says, I, I might be interested in that. And that's the, as near as I can tell, that's the birth of uh, Tesla. And who took Tesla, you know, automobile makers dismissed it. You know, it's just, but it, you know, it's like only in America could this, uh, happen and maybe only in Silicon Valley could you and maybe only with the iron determination of someone like Elon Musk but it's if I can just give you a statistic that I looked up the other day I was really fascinated by it the stock market value of Tesla which last year made 362,000 sold 367,000 cars is larger than the combined stock market capitalization of 
GM, Ford, Toyota, uh, Volkswagen, which sold 42 million cars last year. There's some message there. Well, also Volkswagen's making a huge run into electric cars. Is that is that the, is the market just skewed there when it values Tesla so much and all these other companies sell a lot more cars and are also making a serious yeah. run at electric cars? I think they've been I think they've been really shocked by uh, they've been shocked. Uh, I have the story in the new map of Volkswagen, which was very committed to sort of efficient diesels, and then they ran into what was called Dieselgate, changed the management. I think some people went to jail. Uh, it turned out that they kind of faked their uh, their their pollution tests and huge fines that they paid, new management, and they have gone, we're going to electric cars. And the European Union is really driving it uh, with, um, you know, altogether, if the automobile makers do not meet certain standards, uh, looking at $40 billion of fines, you just had California say 2035, you can't sell internal combustion engine cars anymore. Um, Boris Johnson in England in the midst of a disaster of Brexit and everything has announced in 10 years, no more internal combustion cars. So in the automobile industry has to, you know, it's response to regulation. It's a pretty regulated industry. And so I think you're getting uh, just this whole effort to sort of re-gear to electric cars. And uh, and they're all looking at what Tesla's done, is, which has created not only a, a, a popular electric car, but a very powerful consumer brand. One of the things that I learned from the new map is how deeply oil profits are embedded in other parts of society. You write that dividends from BP and Shell fund 20% of all the pensions in Great Britain. Are there other ways that oil money is infused into our society that we don't really appreciate? And if the oil money goes away, that money might go away too. Yeah, well, I think in many different ways, government revenue, it's interesting. Uh, Joe Biden has said he wants to ban fracking on federal lands uh, in the United States. As you know, the federal government owns 47% of the 11 Western states. It owns a lot of lands. The Democratic uh, government in uh, New Mexico is not happy with that because they're going to lose the revenues that go to pay teachers. Because governments make a lot of revenues from this. So that's another way it's embedded. But I've been really fascinated by the degree. Well, electric cars actually have a lot of plastic in them. Their bodies are plastic, a significant part of that. So it's, it's in all these different ways that you don't think about uh, clothes, but, um, you know, Tylenol. Tylenol? Tylenol. Yeah. Got a headache? Tylenol. Yeah. That's, a, that's from fossil fuels? Yeah. Really? It's a, it's a product, yeah. And uh, the reason that a lot of the, I, I never pronounce it right. No, it's, no Tylenol is not ibuprofen, uh, whatever it is. Uh, ibuprofen. Ibuprofen. Uh, is, no, that's, that's Advil, sorry. i confused. But, you know, these products uh, are they're kind of oil-based. Oil so it's just a lot more oil and gas based. And during the pandemic, um, you look at the masks that people are wearing, they're plastic, they're derived from that. So, so there are a lot of uses of it. Yeah. I mean, you write that another barrier um, to the transition from fossil fuels is the cost of moving to renewable resources. And this is one thing I have, I have a hard time understanding since uh, wind and solar seem like they're a lot more accessible than fossil fuels buried deep in the ground or under the sea. So where are the big costs coming when it comes to the transition that might inhibit well, it? Well, 
unless, by the way, unless everybody has an electric car that doesn't, as in China, they have half the world's electric cars, most of them are operating on electricity that's generated by coal. Uh-huh. So, I mean, just to kind of keep that in mind, um, but China will go to the geopolitical reasons China wants to, uh, wants renewables, wants electric cars. It's not just climate and pollution, there are geopolitical reasons too. Um, but, uh, you know, solar just was a lot more ex- expensive than other forms of generating electricity because the cost of making the, the solar panels. But the Chinese just, um, their ma- manufacturing juggernaut have driven down the cost tremendously. When I started my previous book called The Quest, I interviewed the head of the largest solar panel company at that time, which was a German company. And by the time my book was going into galleys, he'd gone bankrupt because of Chinese competition. So the Chinese have brought down the cost of solar. Wind, it's been brought down by manufacturing around the world because it's, it's a man, you know, you manufacture these turbines. And if you get larger scale, uh, bigger turbines, uh, they capture more wind and generate more electricity. So that's what's brought down that cost. So where the cost used to be, you know, here and here, you know, there's, it's now much more competitive. So that's a positive for renewables that they've moved in that direction. Does it still rely on government subsidies, though? If the subsidies were go, to go away, would that advantage of renewables go away? I think um, it depends where you are and how sunny it is or what the wind is in that particular area. But I think that the wind and solar industries certainly want to see those call them subsidies, call them incentives remain. Um, how will this energy transition away from fossil fuels affect the developing world? We talk a lot about developed nations, but there are many nations that lack clean access to cooking yeah. fuels that have no electricity at all. There's a billion people on earth, as you point out, who have no electricity. How will this transition affect and, them? Well, the World Health Organization says that uh, the biggest environmental problem in the world, this will surprise people who live in the United States, is indoor air pollution from cooking with wood, uh, with waste product from animals and from uh, crop residues. And that's 3 billion people uh, affected. That's, what is that, almost 40% of world population affected by that. And so for them, the need is different. And I have a chapter in the book which describes kind of perspective from developing worlds. And sometimes, you know, they say it's a 700 million versus a 7 billion. Uh, At least some people will say that because they say we need commercial energy in order to deal with these health problems and these uh, that come from and and deal with poverty. So India, we heard it the other day when we did our conference says, well, we have, we see this as a multiple transition because we want to transition to wind and solar, big commitment to that. We also have a big commission commitment to natural gas because we need to clean up pollution in our cities. India has six of the 10 most polluted cities in the world. And so we're, we, want, we want to use natural gas. Uh, we want to use propane, which is a, 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 a petroleum product. We give that to poor people so they can cook with that instead of cooking with all those waste products. So I think they have a different attitude. And I have a quote in the book from the Nigerian energy minister saying, it's great what they want to do in the Netherlands and Germany, but we have different problems. We have hundreds of millions of poor people and we have to get, we have to get commercial energy to them. So it's a different perspective than you might find 
say, in Washington State. I'm speaking with Daniel Jurgen. The book is called The New Map. It's a, really a sweeping history of how energy affects geopolitics. And uh, just a fascinating book that will catch you up on many things you may have missed and tell you about things that you really don't have never really heard of. I want to return to something we discussed a little bit earlier, and that is the relationship between the United States and China, which is being portrayed as the big conflict moving forward in coming decades. I wonder if you could talk about how you see this energy transition from oil and gas to solar and wind affecting the relationship between the two countries. Yeah, if I can, well, let me say something first just about how this relationship is deteriorated. Because I I found it very interesting because I collected statements by previous presidents about China and uh, from Reagan through right up to the present really, where they, Democrats, Republicans, they all, they talked about engaging with a changing China, constructive relationship it's really different now, as you know, and everybody knows, Democrats and Republicans are really divided. But I'll tell you here in Washington, D.C., one thing that they all agree on is that China's not a partner, but a strategic rival, a peer competitor, great power competition, and the Chinese are treating it the same way. And that kind of split, look what it's done to technology. Look at the battle over Huawei. Look at the battle over TikTok. Or look at the question about visas. Look at the role of, you know, there are 360, at least last year, there were 362,000 Chinese students in American universities, by the way, spending a lot of money. Um, but now that's all become, you, you know, kind of fraud. So every aspect, the one thing there has been agreement on is climate. And that uh, the key decision that led the way to the Paris Agreement was what I described in the Great Hall of uh, China. Uh, in Beijing when Barack Obama and uh, Xi Jinping agreed uh, on a climate deal and put a foundation under what became the Paris Climate Agreement that 195 nations signed on to, but two nations were really important, the United States and China. But that kind of cooperation has really faded away. And I focus, for instance, on the, the area where US and Chinese naval ships have come close to colliding with each other, which is in the South China Sea, which is the most important economic body of water in the world. Uh, Two thirds of Chinese trade flows through it, uh, 40% of Japanese trade, but it's also the most dangerous. And it does have, going to your question, an energy component because China has, ever since the Korean War, has been worried about dependence on imported oil. It managed to conquer that for a while, but now it imports 75% of its oil and a very large part of it comes through the South China Sea. And what it worries about is the US Navy in the South China Sea. And if there is a standoff over Taiwan and you know that relationship has become fraught, uh, what will the US Navy do about Chinese oil imports? So that is one of the reasons the Chinese have basically said the South China Sea is ours. They say it's Chinese territory. U.S. doesn't accept that. Vietnam doesn't accept it. Malaysia doesn't accept it. The Philippines don't accept it. Um, But uh, Indonesia doesn't accept it. But uh, the Chinese have built basically stationary aircraft carriers there. So I think that's an part of the energy dimension. We talked before about it in terms of renewables and the supply chains. Uh, And then there's the um, Belt and Road, as it's called, which is the 1.4 1.4 trillion dollar Chinese plan to connect Central Asia, South Asia, 
the Middle East, Africa, Europe, to the Chinese economy uh, through loans, through infrastructure, and through energy. And that has a very strong uh, energy dimension uh, too, as, as well. So uh, energy is an, you know, is an important part. And yet, uh, Ross, here's the irony. Who's become one of the biggest customers for US oil and gas uh, export? China. I want to talk a little bit more about electric vehicles. Um, you quote an official who says that even if every car in the world sold from today was electric, oil demand would still every grow. Other, every, every other car. Yeah. Why, why, why is that? Because, uh, because of the embodied demand for oil that exists there and the growth in, uh, in the emerging markets. I mean, it's, um, uh, if you look around, you know, the oil exporting countries know the United States is not really going to be on a net basis an importer. They look at India, they look at China, they look at Africa. Uh, they say that's where the growth is. And, uh, and as those economies grow, and you look at the number of cars per person in India versus the United States, it's a tiny fraction. So as incomes rise, demand will go up. But that's why when you reach a certain saturation point, and maybe it'll come faster now because of EVs, that's when you reach that, what you described before as peak demand. Uh, we, we think a lot about cars and people buying cars to drive themselves around. But as you point out, there's a whole different uh, thought process going on about rather than mobility as a product, a car you buy to take you somewhere, mobility as a service. And we've seen some of the things like Uber uh, playing into that. Uh, be, uh, so beyond how cars are fueled, how might that kind of transition, should it take place? Well, I mean, get, so giving up your you, car changes. You know, we don't know the future. So yeah. I have kind of what seems a reasonable expectation based upon what we know today, how many cars will be. We, in our company, we have several hundred people who do automotive research. Uh, how many cars will be in 2050? What share will be electric? But there is a possibility of a very different future. And it sounds futuristic now, but I think that's where you're going, Ross. If you take three things and you put them together, you take uh, electric cars, then you take ride hailing, which would come back after COVID. And if I can pause on that, people's attitudes towards cars, I think have really changed. People really used to identify with their cars, but now I think social media and other things have taken over from that, that it's not, it's not the coming of age thing it used to be for people. Uh, and you can see that people, the average age at which people are getting driver licenses is going up. So, uh, and you know the the quick growth of of Uber and uh, and Lyft is demonstrative. So take electric cars, take ride hailing, uh, Uber, if Lyft, and then take autonomous vehicles, uh, or otherwise known as self driving cars, and then you could have a really radically different vision that would just break the business model that's existed since Henry Ford's Model T rolled off the assembly line. And that would be people would own companies, not people, companies would own large fleets of electric vehicles, which would not have drivers, therefore they could work all the time. They can be charged at a central location and they would just be on call to people. And um, I came up with a term to describe that called an auto tech. And I think I came up with that term. That's what my colleagues say, at least. Uh, and um, it would be, it would be questioned then, would that really be 
automobile companies? Would that be the tech companies? Who would be the dominant? Because the software would be central to everything. Who would dominate that business? And that could, you know, could be huge business and it'd be a very different business and a very different attitude towards cars uh, than we know than we know today. So that would be a radically different vision. And then you get into a very interesting question that's already come up, of course. Who owns the data? Does it belong to you, the person who's riding the car? Does it belong to the software who provided the software? Does it belong to the hardware company? Uh, what gets used with the data? So uh, for those who are interested in the issue of data privacy, this opens up a whole new panorama. You know, I did a panel a few years ago about self-driving cars, self-driving trucks. And at that time, it seemed very much of the moment. I, I haven't been reading as much about it lately. And I'm wondering whether that's just my perception or has the no, progress I, on it stalled? I think it is. Uh, it seems to us that the early enthusiasm there has been pushed back, that it is more complicated. To You can do it in limited ways, but to get to scale. So it's, I think... I think while EVs have accelerated, I think self-driving seems to be farther away. One of the people I talked to for the book named uh, Sebastian Thrun, who won one of the competitions for self-driving cars. And then he went to Google and he started, ran Google's self-driving thing, which is now a separate company, a separate enterprise at least. Uh, he's already moved on to, he's doing uh, uh, self-driving uh, air taxis. So he's, he thinks that's the, that's the next frontier. But I think you're right. I mean, we're reading more and more. If you just did that old thing of doing a survey of the press or a survey of media, what's online, you see more and more about electric cars. But I think autonomous vehicles, it's a harder, it's, it seems to be a harder problem to get to scale. How will this whole transition from fossil fuels to renewable fuels affect employment? We hear a lot about the green economy and all the new jobs that will be created because of it. But if you've taken a hard look at, would there actually be enough jobs created to replace those jobs in the oil industry, to replace all those truck drivers and cab drivers who may not you know, have a job in the future? It's, I, you know, I know that argument's there. I haven't, I, I haven't looked at the, the job numbers. I mean, a lot okay. of numbers get there. But I did include, I think there's something like 3 million truck drivers in the United States. And, um, you know, we're a big country, but those are people, if, if you started having this vision, which I think you were describing before, where you would have a lead truck and then you'd have all these autonomous trucks following along, that does eliminate a lot of jobs. By the way, if you also, you know, right now, well, right now it's not a very good time to be an Uber driver, but, you know, that was this important source of income and really growing for a lot of people. The, if vehicles are autonomous, they're, they're not doing that as well. So, um, you know, economic change, technological change does bring uh, sh shifts employment. Um, I don't know anybody who's really looked at the entirety of it. I, I mean, and sometimes it's, it's more sort of, um, you know, in the, in the form of an argument rather than analysis. I'd like to take a look at the different institutions that will affect this huge transition that is underway now and how they each might impact the transition from 
fossil fuels to the energy future, which you argue is coming, but uh, the timing on it is, is questionable. First, let's look at government for a moment. Uh, the U.S. is apt to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord under President Biden. More than half of American states now mandate that a share of their electricity comes from renewables. Um, what's government's role in making this transition in energy a smooth one and averting climate disaster? Well, well certainly it's, it's a regulatory environment, what they... Uh, decide. And I think that we'll see what the Biden administration does. I think it's going to be more inclined to, pardon the phrase, step on the gas for on climate and renewables rather than try and compress this other industry, which I think Joe Biden as a foreign policy guy knows is actually pretty useful to him in foreign policy on key issues, including Russia and China and their new kind of quasi-alliance. Um, uh, but I think what you've seen happen, the push that's been given to utilities by regulation is, I, I think that's absolutely pushed it in that, that direction. The other thing I go back to is the money that we spend on science, on innovation, on discovery, and then taking discovery from discovery to the marketplace. And, um, you know, I did a study some years ago, actually, under the Clinton administration on energy R&D for the Department of Energy. And it just left me with the belief that this is so fundamental, what we invest in our scientific research. And no other country is actually spending the amount of money that we are on basic science. And that's a real strength of the country. But we that's could spend more. Uh, another government question. The Trump administration, of course, pulled us out of the Paris Accord. It's like putting its uh, accelerating the oil and gas leases on public lands. Taken as a whole, how has the Trump administration affected this energy transition? Well, I think a lot has actually happened anyway, going back to what you say, because states have their regulation. Uh, I think because continuing spending of money on R&D, which is very, very consistent, so I think that part has continued. Uh, I think that um, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think they've had as big an impact as you think because the shale revolution has really been driven by the private sector and the oil and gas industry is regulated by states. I mean, they've done things, the fringe, and he's, I have a picture in the book of him with Prime Minister Modi of India kind of selling natural gas. So he's been out there as a salesman for it. Uh, but I think when we look back, we'll say it probably had less impact. But I think what is significant, of course, is that Joe Biden says day one, we're going back into the Paris Climate Agreement, and that will put the U.S. back in leadership on climate, which it's certainly not th there. I mean, just one way to categorize it, Joe Biden in the campaign had a $2 trillion climate plan. Donald Trump did not have a $2 trillion climate plan. I realize you're not, this is not primarily a political book, but do you think the, the era of Trump will be an anomaly going forward in what the U.S. government does in terms of encouraging this transition? I think, I think probably in that sense, yes. I think that, I, I think it will be because I think, you, you know, I think it's going to kind of be more baked in. I think that, uh, again, this is not a political sh show, but I think, it, you know, as, as a president, you realize that Biden will have to, have two things that need to be healed. One is the, is the COVID crisis. The other is American politics. I mean, it's just so, so deeply divisive. And, you know, our institutions, you, 
realize we take our institutions for granted. We take consensus for granted that we believe in the institutions, even if we don't like the outcome of the election. And to be in a situation where at least in one poll, 70% of the Republican voters say they think the election was stolen, that's a big problem in terms of governing. So I think that, you know, so as a president who comes in, Biden, you know, kind of which way does he look? And, and I mean, there were 71 million people who voted for Trump. That's a lot. So how you manage that, I mean, he's, you know, he's a very experienced politician, Joe Biden. Uh, it will be a challenge. And then, of course, there's just the enormous cost of COVID uh, for the U.S. and for countries around the world, the amount of debt and the constraints that that will create as we come out of this. I'd like to talk also about the role of the utility business in this change, which is a mixture of government-run and private businesses that deliver energy to the consumer. And I just read that the America's biggest utility is Next Era. They run Florida Power and Light, and they build wind farms. What role will, you, will utilities play in shaping this energy transition? Well, it is. Uh, you're right. Next Era. There are a couple of now. There are these now seen as these sort of the the global clean energy majors. Uh, it's Next Era. There's Iberdrola, which is a Spanish company, but it's also one of the 10 largest regulated utility companies in the United States. And those are companies that made big commitments to wind, uh, to solar, uh, and, uh, and have been rewarded by uh, investors, by shareholders. Because as you say, the value of uh, Next Era is, a, again, if we go to its stock market value, is very high uh, Compare, and if you compare it to uh, oil and gas companies today. And so I think that is a, that's been a very positive uh, signal for companies like that. And I think there's a lot of money from investors that want to be invested uh, in that sector. Well, another part of business is those big energy companies, Exxon and, and Chevron. Uh, how will they shape and be shaped by this energy transition? Many of them are at least making a nod towards moving away from their basic sources, which are oil, but what role will they play in shaping the transition? Uh, I think, you know, at the end of the day, that they're engineering companies is what they really are. And what I see them putting more sort of focus on new technologies of all kinds. Again, it's one of the ironies that uh, I mentioned in the book, where was the lithium ion battery invented in an Exxon laboratory in 1976, when it was thought the world was going to run out of oil who was one of the two first solar companies in the United States, it was Exxon. And uh, in the 80s and 90s, the main solar companies and manufacturers in the US were oil companies. They got out of it. You see the European going back into it and making large commitments. I think the American companies are still uh, saying, well, we're gonna kind of focus on our business. If you wanna invest in a wind company, don't invest in us, invest in a wind company. I think the Europeans are saying, well, we also wanna be wind companies. So I think these strategies are, are, are changing and kind of adapting to uh, uh, not only government policy, but public opinion. What about the role of us in this energy transition? We have a big debate in our newsroom about whether individual consumer choices really have much, make much of a difference when it comes to the energy transition from fossil fuels to renewables. People go out and buy electric cars they take other measures, they take mass transit because they feel as though they're helping the climate by making personal choices that reduce their carbon footprint. But how big a role do you think individuals really do play in, that, in this transition we're going through? Well, I think as a class, what we call consumers, you know, who buy things matters a lot, you know, as a class. Uh, 
um, individuals, it's something because you believe in it, you do it. I mean, if you, um, if every car in the world was running on electric, that was not generated by coal or gas or something else, but was generated by wind and solar, you would reduce global anthropogenic human CO2 emissions by about 6%. So it's, because, it's funny because people think cars are more, you know, a much larger share of it. I mean, cars, there's other issues about pollution, congestion and so forth. Um, but I think, um, you know, it's a good way to see it. So it's, if you aggregate consumers, it matters a lot because their choices, what they choose to do. One of the things the automobile makers are gonna test are, do consumers wanna buy electric cars? Uh, are they confident? Is there a tipping point where just kind of everybody wants to get on board or is it you know, a slower ride? So consumers will matter a lot, but as a, I would say as an aggregate. So if everybody in your newsroom and everybody else adds up their electric car choices, then that would be significant. I'm talking with Daniel Jurgen, and the book is called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. We've been talking about this. As someone who studies this, you also see how it, energy and geopolitics are covered. And I'm kind of wondering, as an observer of how people are given information about these issues, what aspects do you think maybe get too much attention and what aspects get too little? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, um, you know, I think I'd go back to where we're talking about energy transition. I think it's the scale scale of the energy system we have. Leads, and that doesn't get as maybe as much attention. So leads people to think that you can just kind of throw a switch overnight and make a change in something that's so massive and that underpins our society. So it doesn't mean it doesn't directionally go there, but I feel, yeah, just understanding how the, the underpinnings, what we we're kind of talking about before. Um, I'll have to think about that more. That's a really good question. We'll have you back and ask you that question again, <laughs> uh, or we'll look for an article on it. I'm sure you, yeah. you, you can think about that. You, you were wrapping up this book in the middle of the pandemic and uh, you ask. Uh, will so I have to ask you: Will COVID nineteen speed up the energy transition or slow it down? It's been yeah. some months since you wrote that. Do you have any firmer conclusions well, about it I now, think, a few months down the line? Yeah, I think that um, you know normally you finish a book nine months in advance and they take it away from you. I was still working on this in the middle of July, and I, if we have time, I want to come back and say something about COVID too. Um, I think that um, there's this disruptive technology called digitalization. I think that uh, work patterns will be changed. Every company I know is asking the question, uh, when do people come back to work in the office and on what kind of schedules? Will people work more at home? If everybody's working remotely, does everybody come a, become a franchisee rather than a member of a company? How do you culture creativity? You know, running into people in the hallway, you know, just all those things. But I think that uh, work will become more flexible uh, I think business travel will be replaced. Uh, electrons will replace molecules for some part of business travel. So I think those, those changes are there. And uh, I think it's, you know, just we couldn't have done what, what, what's happening now if we were 10 years ago in terms of technology. So, uh, so in the sense that if it means less travel, less commuting, then that probably, you know, shifts things uh, 
kind of accelerates it more. Uh, I did get, you know, as I was working on this, I did get very curious as to why was COVID such a surprise? I mean, people like Bill Gates had pointed to it. And I had a sense, and I think you may too, that people thought, well, there'd been various things, but they thought SARS, which was the thing in Asia. And then I went back and looked at SARS. 8,000 people became sick, only 800 passed away. And that says, why, you know, this, there were a few people who said, think about this on scale. And, but it was just, an, unless it happened, you couldn't imagine it was gonna happen. And I think that uh, explains part of the re reaction. And, you know, I think last January, we were preoccupied with politics in the country. And because we became so divided politically, it really hampered our response and uh, including, you know, on what would have just been normal public health measures became politicized. But, um, uh, and instead we got, you know, we're in this, still this economic twilight zone. And uh, I mean, one of the things going back to money and scale is one of the things that I really worry about is future of small business in America, because those are the people who don't, have easy access to credit, they don't have savings. And, you know, and yet they're the backbone of so much of our society and our communities. And so I think in a way, so that goes back to your transition question, how much money will we have to spend on the transition? How much needs to be spent on recovery when we come out of this? And I think, uh, and, you know, the wounds of this are gonna, you know, are gonna be deep, deep and will persist. We have, um, we believe, an outgoing president who didn't really believe in, in climate change, didn't think it was actually happening at all. And you alluded earlier to this incredible political divide we have in this country. Is there, do you have any sense of how the fact that we can't agree on basic facts, whether it be about COVID-19 or about, about global climate change, is that going to impact this transition from fossil fuels to renewables? I think so. I think we'll see what the outcome of the Senate races in Georgia will be pretty significant for the climate program. And that we don't, in Europe, there's a consensus on this, you know, about climate and they have very aggressive policies, uh, really taking control of allocating credit, heavy regulation and so forth. And nobody's disagreeing. In fact, the British prime minister, although he's not part of the EU anymore, says that by 2030, no internal combustion engines sold in Britain. But we are, we're, we're, you know, different society and a very divided one. I think that makes it hard if we couldn't, I mean, both if we couldn't agree as a country about what to do, that's a serious problem. And then the fact that, you know, when we had the 2008 financial crisis, we had the world got together and solved it. Here it was every nation was on its own. And I think that bodes ill for dealing with other issues, including climate, that we couldn't do it. And so there is a, you know, a need to you know, kind of bring it together again if we're gonna really uh, address all of the great issues that we have. And uh, these last few weeks have just underlined that maybe we're even more divided than we knew as a country. And you know, people in one part can't believe that people in the other part of the country believe what they believe and it's vice versa. So it's, um, you know, we need, a, we need leadership that can really indeed, as I guess Joe Biden says, be the president of all Americans. Well, if you'd like a 
strong, persuasive, inclusive, and highly readable account of energy and geopolitics. I really highly recommend the new map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Titans. Daniel Jurgen's been telling us about it. I read it from cover to cover, and I'm going to be recommending it to people who would like a, a better understanding of this. A, a terrific job with that. And now I'll ask you the impossible question. We've talked about a lot of aspects of the book, but if readers finish the new map with one insight, what would you hope that would be? Wow. I mean, you know, the hardest thing to write in a book is the uh, second hardest thing is to write the conclusion. The hardest thing is to write uh, the introduction uh, and to say, what is it all about? I think it's about, um, I think that these two factors of, you know, climate and geopolitics will be so determinant of, of the future uh, and how they, they interact and how each of them plays out. So I, I suppose that, but I guess it's to understand the complexity of it and how interrelated things are. And as you know, Ross, in terms of writing this, I tried to, you know, this is not a heavy academic tome. I tried to no. really tell stories and make it lively. Uh, but I think the messages, and I guess the third point is that I feel very st strongly is to, you know, we really need to take seriously where this relationship with China is going. And as I say, it does have some echoes of pre-World War I in it. And that is very concerning. You get a spiral and a breakdown of communication um, and, you know, between the world's largest and second largest economies in the world, this is not a good thing. And that's, I think that will be the, the great test of statecraft in, in the years ahead. So maybe that's, maybe I've said about three things, I think. Well, on that slightly ominous, actually majorly yeah. ominous final note, uh, Daniel Jurgen, thank you so much. On the other hand, there are, Ross, there are a lot of very good and very amusing stories in the book. So I don't want, <laughs> it's an optimistic book, believe me. And a highly readable book. It's a great read. And with that, thank you so much for your time, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. The University Bookstore presented this talk with Daniel Jurgen on November 23rd. To find the full event, and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org, and click on the podcast tab. While you are there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, share your comments. We do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon.